Well, good morning to you. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. This morning is the linchpin. It's the linchpin. It's, it's the biggest thing um, in the Christian, on the Christian calendar. It's the linchpin of our faith. As Paul says in one of his epistles, if Christ wasn't resurrected from the dead, none of us have any hope, and Christians are, of all people, most to be pitied. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about, somewhere, he talks about uh, the, sort of a backstop against, because of death and because of sin and because of what we've brought into the world, um, there's a sort of backstop up against, a hard stop, a curtain that we can't get through up against um, the end of our lives. And the resurrection is, to give you an image, it's sort of like Christ has torn open a hole through which he walks and beckons us into a new creation, into meaning. Um, and so he says he's torn hope open a hole in the pitiless wall of the world. So it's sort of like, to use another image, kind of a platonic image, if you're in, if, we're, if this life, because of death, and because of the pall and the shadow that it casts over everything we do, if that's the end, then your most meaningful day is meaningless. It might feel nice. But if that's the end, and this is all we have, then, then nothing has any meaning. If there's no afterlife, okay, by which it, it, with it, during which we can be at peace with God, with one another, um, in a creation that matters. And uh, it's almost like you're, stand, have you ever been in a cave where you have a cascading waterfall in front of you? It's like life is in that cave and nobody's been able to pierce through that wall of water, but Christ opens up a hole in the water and shows us there's a whole world outside, a new creation, and he steps into it. That's what the resurrection means. It's not just one guy. See, for years and years, I scratched my head. It's not just one man rising from the dead. It's a representative, the God-man, rising to a whole new type of life. And, so I, and that's, I think, what John gets across so well in this chapter as he closes his book. And so I wanna just touch on this briefly this morning with, with three points, no surprise. Um, First point, he is risen, just looking as it comes in verses one through 10, really just looking at some of the circumstantial evidence, and there's so much, guys, we could do a whole series just on the circumstantial evidence for why there is very good evidence that actually that tomb is empty, and he, his body wasn't stolen, and he actually was dead and rose to a new type of life. Um, but we're just going to just kind of pop over the top like a, like a rock skipped across water, um, and I'll give some, at the end of this point, maybe some resources if you want to dig deeper. But he is risen, verses 1 through 10, some circumstantial evidence that he is, in fact, alive. On that Easter morning, almost exactly, on Sunday morning, almost exactly 2,000 years ago, that the tomb was empty. And it hadn't, there were no grave robbers involved with that he rose. Um, John saw this in verse 8, the one who wrote this, one of, the beloved disciple, one of the 12. He saw these things that he was not expecting, even though Christ had said over and over again, I will rise, I will be crucified, I will be delivered over. It's part of the plan. I'm not dying for me, I'm dying for sinners. And I'm not rising for me. I'm rising for those who trust in me to a new type of life. Even though Jesus has said this over and over again, they just weren't expecting it. It wasn't part of the plan. No one was expecting a crucified Messiah. And yet it happened exactly according to plan. And in verse eight, John says, I looked at the evidence that was slapping me in the face and I was convinced I was convinced by that evidence. Um, why, again, he saw in brief. 
Um, it was compelling evidence. And so at the end of this chapter, what does he say? I'm presenting these things to you in verse 31. He says, I'm giving you these things in order that why? That you might weigh the evidence and that you might believe. So just a few things. Literally, we could spend weeks on this. So um, here we go. The first thing that you notice is that Mary Magdalene in another gospel tells us she was at least with one other woman. Um, but she... John records that she goes early in the morning, first light, to the tomb with a bunch of spices. They've, they've uh, sort of done a very cursory, because the Sabbath was the day after he died, they've done a very cursory preparation of his body for burial. They've put about 75 pounds of spices on him and wrapped him in linen burial cloth. But she goes to do more and just to be with the dead body of her beloved Savior, not expecting anything. Obviously, she's carrying spices, and she's downcast. Um, she shows up first. And the fact that she shows up alone and with no one else, and the fact that she shows up with spices and downcast, those three things, and there are many more, are all evidence that she was not expecting anything but the guards, the stone to be there, plead with them, can I please go put this on my dead savior? Um, and we know this because women, if, if the uh, disciples were putting, later putting together a story to give credence to the church, to say, hey, our Messiah rose, they would not have made it up in this way because the testimony of a woman in this culture, right or wrong, and it was wrong, but everyone knew this, was not accepted in a legal setting, okay? Um, so they would not have had women be the first witnesses to the empty tomb. They wouldn't have made up a story that way, least of all, Mary Magdalene, of whom Seven, she was delivered of seven demons. Um, there's evidence that she could have been loose in a lot of ways. She was full of sin. She was full of demonic activity. Jesus came for sinners. And he sets her free and she follows him. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have made up a story like this. She was the first witness. Um, Celsus in the second century, he was a, a, an opponent of the church. Um, he was an apologist against the church. He wrote down evidences against Christianity, and this was one of his primary arguments, was that women were the first witnesses to the tomb. It can't be true. We can't rely on them. Josephus, a Jewish historian at the time, quote, from women let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity or audacity of the sex, he says. New um, excuse me, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, in his huge book on the resurrection, page 607, if you want to look it up, he says, women were simply not acceptable legal witnesses. And then Luke confirms this in Luke 24.10, the third gospel. He says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, so there were more women with Mary, who told these things to the apostles. They were the first ones to see the tomb. They were the first ones to go back and tell the apostles, we're not sure what happened, but he's not there. We think he's been stolen. Um, and what was the apostles' reaction? Luke records it. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Hey, this makes the apostles look terrible. Totally the opposite of credulous. Not ancient Near Eastern credulous bumpkins who believed in stuff like resurrections and ghosts. They didn't. They, even though Jesus told them over and over again, I'm gonna die and I'm gonna rise, they so didn't believe, they didn't even show up. And then when the women said, hey, he's, they, he's not in the tomb, they didn't go, man, that's exactly what he said. They didn't even do that. They just didn't believe them. It seemed like an idle tale. So that's one thing. It's just they never, this is evidence, the fact that women are the first witnesses, that this is a true story. 
that this isn't made up. That's the point I'm trying to make. The second little bit, and there's one more, and then we'll move on uh, to the second point. It's the simple thing. These are simple things. Again, there's a mountain of stuff I'm not going to touch. John outruns Peter. It's kind of comical. I heard some of y'all chuckle when Lindsay read this, but John's the one writing this, and he um, usually refers to himself in the third person. And he says here in verses four and five that he ran. He didn't say I outran. What does he say? He says, verse four, um, both of them were running together, but the other disciple, that's John, he's talking about himself, outran Peter. It's a modest way of putting it, and reached the tomb first, okay? He outran Peter, and he, and he reached the tomb first. Um, but John, it, that's funny because, and it makes sense though, because he was probably the youngest disciple. He is the only one that uh, did not die, that we're aware of, that did not die a martyr's death, although it, it is said that they tried to kill him multiple times. But he ended up in exile on a rock island in the Mediterranean, and that's where he wrote the book of Revelation in about 90, possibly, about 98 at the end of his life. Lived the longest. He was youngest, almost certainly, uh, as a disciple. He was a contemplative. He was more cautious. He would, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read John, anyone for the first time even, you read the four Gospels, you're like, John's way different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar. John's just seeing, he's sitting back doing this, picking up on things that nobody else picks up on. He's something of a mystic. He's quiet. He sees things. He's a seer. Um, and so it makes sense that, first of all, he's younger and he beats Peter. Peter's a little older. All right, Peter's, he's my age. I just turned 40. Peter's like, <laughs> you know, and John just, John just beats him. But then he's more cautious. And what does he do? He just, he's recording this stuff because it happened. There was no sort of historical type novel historical fiction as a genre did not exist in this age. It simply didn't exist. So you wouldn't include these extraneous details to make up a story. He stops at the tomb, seeing that what the women said, it's empty. They're not saying he's risen yet. They don't even believe. It's just empty. He gets there and a sense of awe hits him. And you can kind of see the wheels turn. He starts to put the pieces together and perhaps remember what Jesus said about how he was gonna rise. And he stops. There's, hey, if indeed our savior rose, it's, it's his holy ground. So these things are happening, he stops, and Peter just, just zooms past him straight into the tomb, and he just starts looking around, and he sees the linen sitting there, the headpiece folded, which is our third point that I'll get to, and John finally is like, okay, Peter's in there, and he creeps in, and he looks around, and it says, he saw these things, verse 8, and what? And he put these things together, and he remembered what Jesus had said over and over again. The evidence compelled him. Um, but Peter and his brashness goes in. It's, it's just like, we're familiar with Peter and John if we've read the Gospels. It's just like they would have behaved, and indeed, this is what happened. And so um, we see that in verses four and five and verse eight. And then lastly, again, another simple point, but the linens, there's no reason that you would put the fact that, oh, and by the way, we walked in and here's what we saw. It was empty. And the linens were sitting there, the linens through, in which he was wrapped, um, were just laid out, and then, there, and then the headpiece wrapped around his head, the linen, was folded and put in a different place. This is, this is not the work of grave robbers. This is a dead man who had been wrapped in 75 pounds of spices. If you're gonna knock the guards off, move the rock, and, and take this guy out dead, why would you take the linen off there? And also, to add to that, why would you fold the headpiece up and put it somewhere else? Um, and one of the things that we see here is there's so much, even in this detail, but it 
there's no indication that he was stolen. There's every indication that this was planned from the beginning. The resurrection wasn't a rush job. The death was no accident. It was all according to plan. It was all superintended. And Jesus is basically neatly dusting his hands of death and leaving it behind. And we're going to get to more of that in a second. So that's just three quick points, a little circumstantial evidence. It's like, to borrow um, an illustration from Lewis again, it's like looking at a light beam, a shaft of light that comes through like a dark barn or something, through a shingle, comes down into the barn, and you can see how it's illuminating the particles. Everything that's in its path, you can look at, you can come up close to it and investigate. I used to do that at my grandmother's house. She had a really dusty house. And... um, when the light, a shaft would come through a window, you could see all the dust particles dancing. You could see things that you couldn't see when the light wasn't there. And so you can investigate and inspect. And that's what he's giving us here. But he moves on, and that's good, but I want to propose that he moves in the second scene. Think about this sermon in this text as three scenes. We're about to move into the second scene. And as we move into verses 11 through 23, I think it is, I think he, gives, he moves from circumstantial evidence to something, hey, that's compelling. It was compelling enough for him to believe but something even more compelling and something I think even more mind-blowing. And so he's about to go into that. Um, But if you want more resources, look, maybe, I won't say no farther, but start with N.T. Wright wrote that huge book on the resurrection of the Son of God. Um, Lee Strobel, Case for Christ. He was an atheist who began as a journalist from Yale to look into the evidence. He's not the first guy that did this and he's not the last, was compelled by the evidence as he dug into it so compelled that he actually gave his life to Christ. You rose. You have to be who you said you were. And then finally, Michael Lacona, who did his PhD a few years ago um, on the resurrection, I believe, and he's, he's a hometown boy. He's in Houston, HBU. So, but I think in verses 11 through 23, scene two, John gives us something even more compelling, moves from circumstantial evidence, y'all, to personal evidence. Jesus Christ himself, his resurrection. So if the first bit suggests that he is alive, The second bit um, strongly suggests and tells us theologically that his resurrection means more than just our personal salvation. Hey, not less than. His resurrection means a new creation. I think that's what John's saying here. So let let me just say this. Think about, take a step back and think about Good Friday and what precedes Good Friday, Passion Week, his life. Jesus Christ came and he did, he did all this work as we sang about, um, Loving the poor, touching lepers, healing those with blind eyes, and living a life of love to the Father, pouring his life out in love for us. He did that work, and then what did he say on the cross? One of his last words on the cross, it is finished. Think of that as day six. In the beginning, what does God do? He makes all things in the space of six days. And what does it say at the end of that sixth day? He finished his work, he saw it all, that it was not only good, but very good. And he sits down, as it were, he stops his labor and he rests. What is Saturday? Saturday is the Jewish day of rest. As my wife reminded me yesterday, we're sitting here on Saturday, it's a beautiful day outside. And we're just thinking about the fact that 2,000 years ago, Christ, his work was finished. And as it were, he, were rest, he was resting. He was resting on that seventh day. His work was done. And what happens on the morning of Sunday? 
Well, what I'm suggesting and what I think John is strongly suggesting and compelled to say and wrapped his life around and and was compelled to live by for the rest of his life, along with the other disciples, is that he rose. He rose from death. And what my question is just simply this, what is that day? Is it the first day? Is it the sixth day? Is it the seventh day? Well, it's the eighth day. Or it's the first day, as John says in verse one of this chapter. He starts off, the very first thing John says is now on the first day of the week. His point is this. Christ did all of his work in his life and death for us. Everything necessary for you to be right with God, all of the obedience required from the heart, all of the sin payment for your sin and mine and the debt that we had accrued, paid for on the cross in his body and soul. He took it inside himself. He nailed it to the cross and then he said this, it's finished. And then he rested, just like God the Father on the first day. And without, we're told in John 1, without, without this second person of the Trinity, nothing was made that had been made in the beginning. So here he does something parallel. He finishes his work of life and death. He rests. And then on the eighth day, the beginning of a new week, the first day, I want to say this, the first day of a new order, the first day of a new creation. He, what is strongly suggested here is that he didn't just come to save us, but to start something completely new. He didn't just come for salvation. He came for new creation. So let me give you a few, a few quick examples of that. Um, So when he rose, guys, he rose to usher. This is what I meant by all the stuff at the beginning about walking through the rain curtain and tearing a hole in the pitiless wall of the world. He came to walk through into a new type of life, no matter what you're going through or I'm going through, such that we can have hope in our darkest days. Let me me give a few bits of evidence as to why I think John's making this case of a new creation in verses 11 through 23, okay? First of all, I believe John's the only one that mentions at the end of last chapter, 19, 1941, Where did Christ, where was he buried? 1941 says he was buried in a garden. Um, He's, when Mary comes back, so it seems to to be that she ran off telling the disciples, his body's not there, I think someone's taken him. They run and see that John believes, who knows what Peter's thinking? He's probably thinking about how he denied Christ. It's good news, it's bad news, Uh oh, what's he gonna do to me? Mary comes back, Mary comes back. And she still thinks that he's dead because she's wandering around sort of catatonic like, I just want his body. Somebody stole him, right? That's what she's doing right now. And she's the only person in that garden. She's a woman, a single woman. And he's, Jesus reveals himself to her for the first time. He's a man. And he's called by Paul later, the second Adam. She thinks so he's in a garden, he's one man, he's the second Adam, she's a woman, the only woman in the garden, and she, um, she thinks in verse 15 that it's a gardener. She thinks that he's the gardener. She thinks the risen Messiah, that's just funny, but it's more than funny. It's also a detail that John's giving us to connect to the fact that Jesus was buried in a garden. The fact that she thinks he's a gardener, Adam was a gardener, Adam was told to tend the garden. God is a vine dresser, he, he um, takes the garden of this, of, he takes his people, puts them in a garden, and there's all sorts of imagery and tells them to cultivate it, cultivates them. So God is a gardener, Adam was a gardener, we were made to be gardeners, and she thinks he's a gardener. Um, and so what you have here, again, along with this, creational, this new creational picture, is you have one man and Adam and one woman in this garden together, and he reveals himself to her, and as it were, takes her to himself and says, talks about, go tell my brothers 
my father, their father. He's creating this new family. He's doing this new thing, just like what God did at the beginning, but unstained by sin. He's risen to a new type of life, not touched by death, not touched by the power of sin, no longer subject to death and hell and Satan and his power. And he's building a family and he's calling, just like Adam and Eve were brought together by God, he as the God-man is bringing this woman and all of her disciples and anyone who will to come to him. He's starting something new. Um, Another example of that, another piece of evidence is that it says that there are two angels guarding, um, or, or sorry, sorry, there are two angels in the tomb, and like, oh, you're looking for uh, Jesus. He's no longer here. He's risen, just as he said. Um, and also, another, another bit of evidence in Genesis 3, what do you have? After Adam and Eve break God's law, rebel against him, have chosen death, God expels them east of the garden, pushes them out of the garden for their own good. They can no longer be in that place. And what does he do? On the east side, he stations two angels, or angels, cherubim, with flaming swords to guard against what? The the way back to the tree of life. Okay? So they can't get back in because of their sin, which has brought death into the world, to them and to us. They can't get back in to life. And what do we see here? We see two angels, hey, in a tomb, in a place of death. Death has barred the way for us to have any more meaning. If death is the end, there is no more meaning, period. And these angels say, in this place of death, this tomb, Jesus Christ has risen and he's made of death a path to life. He's literally opened up that portal and in a tomb allowed through the tomb, through his death on the cross for us to walk into life. Um, So he's letting us back into the garden. One more example, actually two more. In verse 22, Later, in another, in another scene, it says that Jesus breathes on the disciples. It's a, kind of a weird scene. Until you see, I think, what John's doing. And what does God do in the beginning with Adam? He makes him from the dust of the earth, and he breathes the breath of life into them. Again, what is Jesus doing here? He is the God-man, and he is doing exactly what he did with Adam in the beginning. He's giving them his own spirit. He's reuniting them to the Father. And then in verse 21, he gives those disciples a commission, just like God gave a commission to our first parents in Genesis 1:28. And so he gives Mary this commission in verse 17. He says, go tell my brothers. What's he doing here? He could have said, go tell those rats who all either scattered or watched me hang. He didn't do that. He says, go tell my brothers. In other words, what's he doing? He's putting them on the exact same level as he is. Because of what I've done, you now have the same status that I have with my father. I'm the only begotten son, and now you are of equal status, you're my brothers, okay? You're privy to all the privileges that I have. We're family, he's creating that new family. Um, uh, Brunner, um, a German uh, theologian of old, says, says it this way, he says, in this one word is crammed the whole New Testament gospel of forgiveness. For Jesus could have called his cowardly disciples a lot of names we haven't read in the Bible, but he didn't. He called them brothers. And you think especially, I've had some brothers this morning say as they were reading the, uh, the accounts, they were thinking especially of Peter and Peter's mentioned separately in another gospel and of James. Peter denied Christ three times as Christ said he would. What's Peter thinking right now? 
When Jesus says, go tell my brothers, Peter's probably thinking, but not me. But in another gospel, he says, go tell my brothers and Peter, or go tell my disciples and Peter to go meet me in Galilee. He's including Peter. With James, his brother, his half-brother, who was a son of Joseph and Mary, whereas Jesus was just a son of Mary and of the Father, James didn't believe in Jesus, his own half-brother. He didn't believe he was who he said. He thought his brother was crazy. And he has a private conversation with James as well. He's, he's going to individual after individual who need a special encounter with him, and he's bringing them in, and he's saying, you too, because of what I've done, are my brothers. He says this. He says, tell them this, Mary. I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Notice how he says that. He doesn't just say, I'm going to our father. He says, I'm going to my father and your father. In other words, I'm unique. I am the only begotten son of the father from all eternity. I've always existed. I've always been in the side of the father, in perfect love with the father. And now because of what I've done on the cross, I've, I've died for you, not for me, and I've risen for you, not for me, to a new type of life. And because of that, because of my victory over death, because I'm, he's my father, he's now your father. See what he's doing? He's bringing us up to him. But he's also saying, He's my God and your God. He's coming down to us. You see the condescension there? I'm a man. I'm a man as well. And just as he's my God as a man, he's also my father, but he's my God and he's now your God. So we see, the, we see him bringing us up and we see him coming down to us um, as well. And so I just wanna encourage you that salvation isn't something that you can lose like a, like a pair of glasses, it's being brought into a family and being made a son or a daughter. And that's not something you can lose. It's a new identity. And we're brought into a new family through the work of another by believing on him. So I want to encourage you in that, dear friend. Um, so if the first bit of circumstantial evidence was like looking along a light beam, this is kind of more like stepping into it and just almost being blinded, as it were, by its light, seeing whatever, whatever the light beam reveals along that light path and being warmed by it. The first bit is looking at Jesus and at the evidence for an empty tomb. This bit is actually John saying, but I want you to see that the best and most compelling evidence is Jesus himself. He's saying, come to me. And that's what we really see in this last bit here. Um, point three, um, a recommission or do not disbelieve, but believe in verses 20, 24 through 31. He gives us in this scene with Thomas, which is one of my favorites in the whole gospel, he gives us more evidence to believe but he also says, ultimately, I'm the one that I want you to believe on. It's me. It's not even a set of dogma, although there is a set of things that you, we ought to believe, but it's Jesus Christ, the one who came, became one of us, lived a life that we can't live, and died the death that we deserve on the cross. He is the evidence, and he's saying, come to me. So this encounter with Thomas is beautiful. Um, this is kind of the third scene that we see here that John shares. And Thomas was absent in the evening, on Sunday evening, Jesus walks through a wall. Same body, but it's been transformed. He still has the holes in his hands. He still has a body, but he can walk through walls now. And the disciples think he's a ghost, because again, they're not credulous. They don't believe that he's risen from the dead. What are, they, what are we seeing? And he's like, give me something to eat. And he eats a piece of fish in front of him. He's like, I, this is me. It's me. And he speaks to them, but he's been transformed. And he spends time with them, and slowly they begin to believe full of awe, full of joy. But Thomas wasn't there, and Thomas is a hard-nosed skeptic. And he hears later, like, the Lord's been with us. We ate fish with him. 
He walked through the walls. We had the door locked. And, the, and he's like, I am not gonna believe. Unless I put my finger, I saw him die. John, you saw him die. You were so close that he gave his mother to you and you saw blood and water come out, which is a sign of death. They were separated. They came out of his side when they pierced it with the spear. You saw that, John. I'm not gonna believe unless I poke my finger into that hole and into his hands and into his feet where he was crucified. So Jesus, eight days later, he comes into the room and Thomas is there. And again, just like with Peter and just like with James, his half-brother, what does he do? He doesn't come and say, okay, who's the, one who di- who's the hard-nosed skeptic who disbelieved? Bam, squash him into jelly. He doesn't do that. He could have. He could have. But what does he do? To all of them, and in particular to Thomas, he says, what's the word he speaks? And this, again, all the gospel could be compressed into this one word. Peace to you. Because, because of what we have earned in life, we have chosen and made war with the holy God. And we deserve what he took. But he didn't die for himself. He died for us. And his resurrection was proof that his payment was accepted by the Father for you, not for him. As a friend told me, his, his resurrection was the check clearing. His payment was the cross. And he, he was raised from the dead And when that happened, it was the father saying, payment accepted. You paid to the last farthing everything that every sinner who looks to you for salvation owed me. It's finished. And so he comes in and because of his work, he's risen and he knows the payment's been accepted. And what does he say? He says, peace, I've earned it. I am your peace. Come to me, come to the family enjoy relationship with God the Father. And he goes to Thomas, and instead of squishing him into jelly, what does he say? He says, touch me. Come on, touch my hands. Here it is, put your hand in my side. Touch my feet. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Any evidence you need, I'm right here, and I'm telling you, I'm enjoining you. Search it out and search me out and come to me. The church might have done you wrong, friends. And in fact, if you've been around the church long enough, it has. Because it's full of sinners like me and we don't just make mistakes, we sin. And Christ died for sinners, okay? There might be things about the dogma of this or that denomination that you have been offended by or are still offended by or rub you the wrong way. But in the end, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, come to me. Find me in the words of the Gospels, in the words of all the Scripture, yes, but come and study me and come to me and make this Gospel a prayer, Lord. Reveal yourself to me in a dream, in a vision, in your perfect word and test me and come to me and inspect. I'm not too high. I've come low. I'm accessible to you. I've paid for everything. I paid for death and hell and sin so that you can approach me and not get turned into melted butter or worse. Come and do what you need. Test me. Touch me. Come to me. I am the way to the Father. And so that's what he says to to Thomas. And Tom, it transformed Thomas from a hard-nosed skeptic into the first one who says to Jesus, what? My Lord and my God. And so Jesus invites you and your skepticism, but he says, come, come to me. Um, just a few things here as we, as we close down um, and then go to a denouement. Um, Jesus, 
Um, he says, peace be with you. Um, he was delivered up and, uh, for our trespasses and raised for our justification. His resurrection is the check clearing. Luther said it this way, Christ was raised not for himself, but for me. The fact that he was raised means that um, his payment for you has been accepted. Um, don't disbelieve, but believe. So what is, sort of in summary, what's John trying to tell us with this resurrection account? account? What ought we to take away? Um, I have a friend that said that for a long time I rejected Christianity without really ever investigating it. And John is simply saying what Jesus is saying and what he came for, which is investigate. Look at the evidence and come to Jesus himself, whom these gospels reveal. And um, don't disbelieve, but whatever you need, test him, touch him, take of him, but to believe on him um, and to follow him. So don't disbelieve, but believe is the first thing. Um, the second thing is, again, that Jesus didn't just come to save you, but to make all things new. To put it in a catchy way, he came not just for salvation, but for a new creation. Fleming Rutledge says this. She says, the church is not a redeemed boat floating in an unredeemed sea. It's not as if the only thing that has changed is that our sins are forgiven and we person by person come to believe in Jesus. Rather, there's been a transfer of ages, an exchange of one cosmos for another. It's not less than Jesus saving you, it's more. Your salvation, friend, is a strand in a tapestry, a new tapestry that God is weaving in making all things new. Um, resurrection, his resurrection means that all life, ordinary life, a dinner with friends, our children and the joy that they have, a blade of grass, a wildflower, you know, the peach streaks across the sky at the sunset, the cool breeze, a good glass of brown ale. In my case, a nice puff on a nice birch pipe a glass of red wine, um, fellowship, meaning, work, rest, play, the ordinary stuff. That's what he came to redeem. If death is the end, and it's what we've merited through our lives and our disobedience with the holy God, if death is the end, all that stuff vanishes in the end and none of it matters. Even if we believe that death is not the end and a holy God that we have to climb up to, by our own good deeds, and in the end, we're sort of weighed to see if we've made it. In the end, if we truly believe that God is holy, he can't countenance sin. How can we measure up? Again, there's no hope in that scenario. But Jesus provides another way. Because he, he didn't die for him, he died for you, and his payment was accepted. And that's what the resurrection means. The resurrection means that Jesus' payment for you, if you look to him, was accepted. It does, it's not just one guy rising from the dead. It means that we have the word that he spoke to his disciples, peace. And then he gives us this commission. And it also means that he, in the same body, he rose in the same body but renewed. He is going to bring us back. He gives us his spirit now when we trust in him. And one day we will have new bodies as he does now. And we will enter into a new creation which we, we're already entering into in part now, but one day when he returns, he'll make all things new. An ordinary life will be enjoyed with him forever. Um, Tim Keller says that there's nothing better than ordinary life except that it's always going away and falling apart. The resurrection means this, not anymore. Not anymore. Um, I'm actually gonna skip for the sake of time um, the denouement. Well, mm, let, me, let me finish with it briefly, briefly. You know I can't. 
The denouement is this. It's the last chapter in the book. And I'm just gonna touch on it briefly. It's probably my favorite bit of John. It's John chapter 21. And it's this beautiful passage that, God, that John gives at the end of his gospel. And um, it's, of, um, it's of the disciples who really, there's a sense in which they've seen, they've been with the resurrected Christ, but they don't know what to think. They're up in Galilee in the north of Israel and they've just kind of, they've gone back to what they know, which is fishing. And Jesus pursues them. And in the early morning, he shows up on the beach. Again, not to slam them with a hammer and to say, I revealed myself to you guys. I died for you when you scattered. I've met with some of you one-on-one. I've shown you that, that you have peace because I'm the resurrected Lord and still you're fishing. You're going back to your old trades. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He cooks them breakfast by the sea. And what does he say? He says, come to me and sup with me and eat with me and be with me. And he takes Peter in particular aside, who had denied him three times, and he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And the only other time that he makes a coal fire for them over which he he cooks some fish, the only other time that word coal is mentioned by John in in his gospel is at the coal fire where Peter is warming himself as his Lord is being scourged and whipped to death before he goes to the cross, when Peter is denying his master. What is Jesus saying? Is he rubbing Peter's face in it? No, he's saying, he's saying we, there has to be a reckoning, Peter. We have to, you have to face what you've done and how you've rejected me and still know that I died for you, that I love you, and I'm commissioning you, and I'm sending you out because I died for broken, imperfect, cowardly, sinful people. I love you. I love you, and, I'm, and I want you to go not fish for fish anymore. I'm sending you because of what I've done, because of this hole that I've ripped in the, the rain curtain of the world, this impenetrable wall. I'm stepping through, through my resurrection into a new week and a new day and a new creation. Free from sin, free from the power and the dominion of Satan, free from death. Death's no longer the end. It's the beginning for us now. I'm inviting you into that to tell every creature under heaven you can about what I've done. Four sinners, for free, I've paid it all. Just come, just come to me and feed on me. Consider the evidence, consider me, and go fish for men. I love you. I laid my life down for you. So this is where Jesus ends. With Peter and with us, be reconciled to me. See that you deserve what I took, but I took it in your place. Eat with me, fellowship with me, follow me, and then go, go proclaim the message to every creature that you come into contact with. This is your new commission. Just like God gave the commission to Adam and Eve in the beginning, so Jesus gives us, us this commission. Our commission is to know God and what he's done in Christ, how he's reconciled us to himself, and then to go say that God has made a way to be known through Jesus Christ to every single person who will listen to us. That's why we exist, to know God and to make him known. Um, It's why we have hope. Without the resurrection, we're of all people to be most pitied. But because of the resurrection, let me finish with this. The Christian, and I'm speaking to some of you in particular right now, the Christian who has a firm and sure hope in Jesus Christ through faith on his or her worst day, is, is 
better off than the unbeliever, the one who has rejected Christ and continues to reject Christ on his or her best day. For someone who is not, and I may be speaking to you right now, and I beckon you to Christ, and I am, want you to hear this. Your best day on earth, this is as good as it's gonna get. For the Christian, this is as bad as it's gonna get. Okay, this is as bad as it's gonna get. I want that to encourage some of you in particular today. Christ is with you where you are, cooking you breakfast by the sea. He's never gonna leave you. He's never gonna forsake you. He's taken care of death. He's taken care of hell. He bore your sins on the cross. The work is finished. Rest in him and share him with a watching world. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the fact that we're not, we're not praying to a dead Messiah. What a waste of time that would be. You're alive. You didn't die for you. You died for us. You died for me. And you didn't rise for you. You rose to a new type of life, to a, into a new creation, creating new Adams and new Eves with a new commission to share the gospel with every single person we encounter for us. You call us your brothers and sisters. We can call God our Father because of who you are and what you've done, and you live. You're in us by your Holy Spirit, and that, again, is evidence that you are alive and that you are reigning and that you will return. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done. We bless you. Would you empower us? Would you save us? Would you sanctify us? Would you change our lives by believing more and understanding more in the significance of your resurrection? The Father accepted your payment for our sins. We're free. We're free. We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.